The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Your bulletin, it says Genesis 1 all the way to the end of chapter 4. Some of you might be concerned about that. Uh, don't be concerned. But I would encourage you to read it uh, to get maybe the fuller sense of what I'm hoping to do today as we think about the making of the promise here on our first Sunday of Advent in the midst of a long uh, monologue that God gives after Adam's sin, we have embedded in verse 15 a promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In uh, 2008, a movie was released that took uh, the world by storm. The movie might have just gone in the bin with the rest of the action movies of its day had it not been for one scene in the movie where there was a strategically placed phone call and speech by a man desperate to rescue his daughter who had been taken. Like the famous kick from the original Karate Kid movie that was practiced by so many and embarrassingly I raised my hand, um, this speech, which was in total 101 words, was practiced, perfected, and then repeated and repeated. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you that I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. I can't do Liam Neeson, so I wasn't even going to attempt. <laughs> Seven years after the movie in 2015, the cultural commentator and novelist Stephen March wrote a brief essay on that 101-word speech, observing that in that the speech in the movie uh, taken actually finds its roots in two of the greatest speeches given in recent history. In 1940, Churchill's We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech, and then the 1963 I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. delivered on the steps of our nation's capital. The essayist March makes this observation about the three speeches. 
He writes, and I quote, they are incredibly similar even though the situations from which they emerge could not be more different. The speakers repeat phrases, I will, we shall, I have a dream. Those phrases are predictive, that is, spoken in future tense. The speeches are very simply expressed with almost no big words. They combine the abstract, particular set of skills or growing confidence and growing strength or the Lord shall be revealed with physical details. I will find you and I will kill you. We shall fight in the hills and little black boys and black girls. March observes they are also delivered unbelievably slowly. End quote. Of course, Churchill and King spoke while facing desperate moments of public reckoning that are real world. While the character Brian Mills, played so famously by Liam Neeson, is not real world. And yet, Neeson's 40-second monologue immersed itself in American culture. Perhaps you remember or heard somebody kind of quote trying to do their best Liam Neeson, the desperate father warns those who have taken his daughter that he possesses a particular set of skills. This morning, we invite you into a four-week immersive experience called Advent. Our prayer is that as we enter into this, the first season in the church calendar, that we will encounter the living God who eternally possesses a particular set of skills called grace and mercy and even judgment. For Advent is a time when we encounter the God of Genesis who makes a promise, the God of the New Testament who delivers on that promise, the God who has promised that he will indeed come again, but also the God who has promised to be present with us. That he would make himself known to us today. For where two or three are gathered, he is in our midst. If I could offer the essayist Stephen March one critique of his 2015 work, it would be this. He actually omitted the most significant speech of all. You see, the speeches he so ably dissects finds their foundation in the monologue God gives in Genesis 3, and in particular, verse number 15. The will to fight against evil, be it the evil of Nazi Germany or the racism of America, is found in God's willingness to overcome all evil. The I will of God and the predictive he shall and you shall of God ring down then through human history. They become and provide our basis for hope. Listen carefully to the 27 words that will take me most likely less than 15 seconds to read, and yet contain the hope 
of humanity. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Like Churchill and Martin Luther King Jr. and even the fictional character Brian Mills, the promise God made was not given, or excuse me, the promise God made was given in times of darkness. Eve ate the forbidden fruit, gave it to Adam. Adam ate as well. And as we read from Romans 5, when Adam eats, the entire human race is plunged into sin and the curse of death that accompanies the sin. The darkness of Nazism and racism is a direct result of sin imputed to Adam's race. But unlike Churchill and King, whose outcomes were not at all certain, the outcome that God speaks is certain. He will overcome all evil. Even though it does not read that way when you get to the end of chapter 3 and then read into chapter Number four, <clears throat> when the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. It is an incredibly sad and painful story as we read that the two boys that are born to Adam and Eve, and instead of this being a family of love and harmony, death finds its way in. Cain kills his brother Abel. So let that sink in. Cain violently murders his brother Abel. Cain snuffs the life, the breath of God, out of his brother Abel. And yet, just as God was merciful to Adam and Eve, we read that God shows mercy to Cain. And then we read Cain's response to God's mercy in verse 16, that he goes out from the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What is Cain's response to the mercy of God? He goes from the presence of the Lord. And he begins then what the Bible describes for us and we can identify as the human project. Cities are built. Civilizations are forged. Along with agrarian pursuit, there's music. There's the forging of all instruments of brass and iron. But we need to ask, what develops 
from a civilization that deliberately moves away from the presence of the Lord? Well, we don't have to guess at the answer. Just look at our own nation. A nation that has deliberately moved from the presence of the Lord as it constructs a civilization void of the presence of God. But the God of the scriptures is not a God who panics. I was thinking a lot on that since our brother Tom Bischoff preached that a few weeks ago. There will never be a time when God says, it's time to panic. He is not a God who panics. He is not desperate. Instead, the predictive words of the promise begin to find their way into the darkness as another son of Adam is born. We read that in verse number 25 of Genesis 4 that Adam had relations with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then to Seth was born Enosh. And as chapter number four closes out, here's the hope that we have. To Seth and to him also was a son born and he, began, and he called his name Enosh. Then men did what? What did they begin to do? What did they begin to do? Are you reading along with me? They began to do what? Call in the name of the Lord. If you follow the story of how God recovers and restores the fellowship that was broken, what you read then as you follow the story of Scripture are more examples of failure for the impact of Adam's sin is greater than the will of humanity to resist it. The rise and fall of heroes in the Bible are constant until you arrive at one son in the line of Seth. A child born into a world as dark and brutal as those described in the early chapters of the Bible and yet he grew to be the man who always called on the name of the Lord. When Jesus entered the dark world, he was announced to be the light. And what we find is that just as God filled the dark emptiness in Genesis by creating a world filled with light and beauty, so in the story of the birth of Jesus, an empty world of darkness is now filled by the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, filling the darkness with light. Sight restored, ears open, lame people now walking, dead people being raised. The merciful and grace-filled ministry of Jesus is the long echo of the grace and mercy of God given to Adam and to Eve. But more was needed if the enemy was to be crushed. What would be needed is a son of Adam to take on death and conquer it. 
And this, of course, happens when Jesus is crucified. As God promised, his heel is bruised. The heel of our precious Lord is bruised, while at the same time, the head of the serpent is crushed, and all of it is done in accordance with the scripture. For the God who spoke in future tense in Genesis 3 is the God who acted some 2,000 years ago to overcome the enemy of death. But the predictive promise of Genesis 3 is more than just the destruction of the enemy. It also contains the promise that all things will be restored. The completion of the restoration project is as certain as the destruction of the enemy. It too began with the announcement of light as the darkness of the tomb is filled with light of the glorified son who steps out now as a conquering hero, the first fruit of new creation. And that new creation then comes to us. It makes its presence known in this room as we, through faith, look to God for forgiveness for our own sins and deliverance for the power from the power that those sins have over us. For just as the power of Adam's sin is removed, the power of God's righteousness that Paul talked about in Romans 5 becomes ours. It becomes ours so that we enter into the same kind of fellowship that our first parents enjoyed in the garden when they walked in the cool of the garden, Coram Deo, face to face with God. And then what was and is the highest point of humanity is that when they looked at each other, they were naked and without shame. This is what the power of God's righteousness will accomplish when new creation comes into all of its fullness. We will, in the great second advent of our Lord, be transformed in such a way that we will live for all eternity, Coromdale, face to face with God. And when we look at one another, we will have no shame. We will have no separation. We will have no guilt. We will be, as it were, naked before one another without shame. And here then is the challenge for the church. Will you, will we accept the invitation to be immersed in the life of the one who was bruised but conquered? Will we bear his reproach? Will we proclaim him to be the only hope for the brokenness and darkness and pain of humanity? Will we hold it together as a prayer, offering it to God for one another? Will we organize our lives around him or not? Or not? Will we, like our Lord, always be calling on the name of our God or we, will we have Cain-like lives away from the presence of the Lord? 
our invitation for you to enter into Advent is an invitation to leave behind the Cain-like adventures of the failed human project and to take up the adventure of Jesus, who came as a fulfillment of the promise and is coming again to complete it. But I warn you, accepting that invitation will require something of you. But this great and loving God, who has the particular skills of grace and mercy, will be present in your life to help you live in victory over sin and darkness and the death of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray that truly that these words of my mouth and these meditations of my heart would find acceptance in your sight, but that you would make yourself present, presently known to us now. Where meek souls will receive them, still the dear Christ enters in. Pray in your blessed name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.